What do you think of when you hear the term old school? Hmm. Well, it's definitely not a new school. David, oh, uh, you can leave at any time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm angry. Um, well, honestly, I'm when I mad. hear it, when I hear old school, I think uh, that last line, one of the last lines of The Incredibles, the first one, when those two old guys are seeing the supers out and about again and they're like, See that? Yeah, that's the way to do it. That's old school. Yeah? <laughs> old school like the old school. <laughs> oh. Do you That's guys one of the that? worst lines in the film. Actually, the, wor- <laughs> the worst line in The Incredibles is, uh, if he so much as sneezes, we'll be there with a hanky and a pair of handcuffs. <laughs> oh, no. You're right. Dude, that's a great line. Fundamentally disagree. Uh, uh, it's, um, I don't know, there's something about it. It seems kind of like overwritten to me. It's like it's too clever for a normal I l- person. I to love decide. that, though. Stephen King would say like that, that people need to speak realistically, speak like real people, and that's not real. But that's a novel. Like a novel, I agree. Um, I guess that brings right. up an interesting question in D&D. Like, if you're, uh, do you want your NPCs to sound more natural or more kind of overwritten? I, I don't know. Hmm. Well, it's hard because you're in the moment and you're just making up stuff. I've actually never had players complain about somebody sounding too frou-frou, frilly, uh, you know, uh, Ren fair type of thing. But then I don't really do voices <laughs> yeah. like that. I just want to play a, a Dungeons & Dragons game where everyone speaks in Shakespearean. That would be tough to improv Shakespearean. Doth thou us thinkest doth thou can attack at me? Yeah, you're already running out of steam. Yeah, it's. Uh, I give you an F oh. out of ten. <laughs> F out of ten. I'll take oh. it. Okay. When I uh, okay, I had a weird experience. So a couple months ago, my wife and I were driving up California, uh, and we passed through Sacramento, which I had never stopped at. So we went and visited the capital and we ate at a restaurant. At a restaurant near the capital in Sacramento. Our waiter is this very tall black guy who is blind in one eye, nice. a totally shaven head, and he Whoa. tells us to call him old school. Yes. O-L apostrophe S-K-O-O-L. Right. An NPC that I would have thought would be too outrageous for for the game. He was a great waiter. He got us to try all kinds of things on the menu we wouldn't have tried normally, but he was a great guy. Anyway, that was old school, and I gave him a five-star Yelp review. So... Look, if you find the review and screenshot it to me, then you're going to win the prize. Welcome to Vox Arcana. I'm William. I'm Jake. I'm David. And this is a podcast about tabletop RPGs, game design, and advice for all game masters. This is episode 23, The Old School Revival. I'm very excited to talk about this today. Ooh. Um, oh, I know this is your bread you guys and butter. Heard oh, of this? This is my bread and butter. More recently, um, it has been. So, what do you know about the OSR? Just tell me what you think this is. I Ooh. I know what it stands for, and that's only very about, recently uh, that uh, I learned what it stands for. Advan- <laughs> this is about advanced Dungeons and Dragons and all the old the old games that Gygax used to play. Okay, and how bad they were. <laughs> <laughs> why would they be wait is it old school renaissance or old school um, nobody agrees on if it's old school rev- yeah it's it's either or it's both old school so neither and both. it is all three old of those school resistance no <laughs> the old old school resurrection uh Ooh. so i it's kind of this nostalgia for original how the game was like it's almost a D or just a gaming 
in its purest sense. And I think it's kind of covered in nostalgia and almost kind of like how people say, oh, we have to interpret the Constitution how the founders wrote it, like what they were thinking at the time. Mm. And I think people are kind mm. of trying to do that to Gary Gygax um, and look at the creation of this game and go, okay, what what was this this game supposed to be? What 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 is it at its its core? What is the essence mm. of role playing games? Wow. Okay. Well, that's uh, I think Jake's a little closer than David. Um, so if that's what you <laughs> think of it, then this episode will be very informative. Mm. Um, so I'm gonna I'll just walk you through, and uh, we're gonna go from there. So the OSR, old school revival, old school renaissance, whatever you want to say, I'm gonna call it the OSR. Um, to explain what it is, I have to go through a little bit of history. So Jake, put on your history hat and David, put on your history pants. Oh, it's, it's, uh, mine can't come off. We're getting, <laughs> oh. well, well, I'm not I'm, wearing any pants. That's why I told you to put them on. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So to learn about this, I have to talk a little bit about the history of Dungeons and Dragons as a game and the companies that made it. So 1974, Gygax and Arneson come out with the very first D&D Little Brown booklets, um, those rules were, um, let's say they're hard to understand. They are written at a college level by people who are not necessarily very good at organizing rule books. D&D was a supplement, a, um, I guess now you would think of it like a mod in video game terms for another game that Gygax had come up with called Chainmail, which was a war game. Um, and so he, uh, he had this variant and, um, his friend Dave Arneson had this castle and they played this game and they had a bunch of people. Um, at one point they were playing D and D every single night of the week in, um, uh, first it was Arneson's basement and later it was Gary's basement with like dozens of people oh, crammed into the this little cellar. Cause they were, they were so excited to play this weird new game. There was, um, yeah. it was unprecedented. This type of thing had never happened before because it was attracting people who didn't even care about war games. It was just getting everybody to play. Yeah. All right. So, um, time goes on. The game continues to have changes and things built into it. Um, what this means is um, there's a book that I read called Playing at the World. It's a complete history of D&D written uh, in the form of a very stiff and starchy textbook. This is not something uh, that's casual to read. It is written like a research paper. Huh. Um, and you'll learn everything if you read that. But in this book, you'll learn that um, the moment that D&D came out in 1974 and people were playing it, people were house ruling it. They were making their own modifications. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, I thought that it was something that was more recent um, until I read this book. It's like, oh no, like the moment people read it, they say, well, I don't like this rule. I'm going to throw this out. I'm going to change this, whatever. Like they were changing every part of it and then writing to Gary and saying, hey, idiot, why did you do it this way? <laughs> right? It's like the internet. Some things haven't changed. People haven't changed yeah. much. Um, but this is, this is continued. And I think that's because Gygax and Arneson didn't create a game. They created a, um, I guess you would call it like a system that helps you design your own game. It's a toolbox. Yep. It's a, uh, equipment for people to make their own game very easily. All right. Mm-hmm. So um, the company that makes d and I'm going to fast forward here a little bit. Um, it's called TSR. It's Guy Gax's company. It stands for Tactical Studies Rules, which is about as fun to say as, um, as you think. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from a wargaming background, of course, it's about tactical rules. Um, so the game okay. first came out in 1974. Uh, that edition of the game was called The Little Brown Books because it came in three different books. Um, hand, mm-hmm. letter, hand printed by Gygax and his family. Apparently he uh, employed mm-hmm. his kids who were like s- 10 and 6 years old like to tough boxes <laughs> to fulfill orders. They Child labor in like <laughs> history. <laughs> they, they could not print them fast enough to keep up with demand. 
Um, okay, so that was the first one. In 1977, they released the D&D Basic Set First Version, which is sort of a, a revised rules for this. In 1977, they came out with a game called Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. In 1981, they split um, D&D into two versions. They had Basic and Advanced, or Basic and Expert, excuse me. And so there was two boxes. Um, one was intended to be for casual people who didn't know, like the board game kind of person. And then yeah. advanced was what you move on to when you graduate. But what actually happened is that everybody bought advanced because they're like, oh, well, I'll just, I'm going to use the best most <laughs> rules. Duh. I'm not, I'm smart. I, mean, I would have done the same Me thing. Me smart. Me smart. So that was the basic set. So peak D&D was, I would say, from probably 1981 until maybe 1989, which was the year I was born, okay. coincidentally. Hmm. Huh. So that was, that was when it got real hot. Um, sometime in the 80s, I'm not sure exactly when, that's when we had the Satanic Panic. Um, we might devote an episode to that, but there's podcasts and things you could listen to to learn about that. I'm actually doing um, a, just a, big I'm controversy doing a story that, episode on it. Oh, yes, good. So we'll, we'll link to that later. Um, but if you want to learn more about this panic, um, you can definitely go read about that. Um, long story short, it made the sales for the game boom even more. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Because nobody, had, yeah. people had not heard of D&D, oh, but great. all of a sudden it was in every newspaper in America. And then there's people who are like, what? This sounds fun. I want to I wanna try this game to see if I get possessed by a demon. And, uh, and the, Yeah, it's so kind of like uh, a, 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 or a, a Ouija board, you know? Like once you hear <laughs> stories or just like the warnings, it makes you want to play it more. Yeah. It's just for Gary Gygax said... Gary Gygax said, there's no such thing as bad publicity. And they sold more games during that scandal than they ever had. So they were selling millions <laughs> of units of D&D in the 80s. But it peaks uh, due to a just gross mismanagement of the company that's making D&D. Um, a, a huge amount of nepotism on the part of the CEOs. And eventually the outing of Gary from the company via some really vile corporate maneuvering. Um, TSR goes out of business. They hemorrhage money until they can't hemorrhage anymore and they sell the license to uh wizards of the coast which was a game company that was famous for making uh magic the gathering uh, and they were owned by a bigger board game company called hasbro so um they had this really um un i guess you would call it a prestigious gaming ip this dnd game um, that was effectively dead. In the 90s and in the 80s, there were so many clones and copies and just variant um, games in this category, RPG games. D&D was old hat. It was not cool. Um, it was clunky, at least from what I understand of the perception of the time. There was obviously still people playing it, but um, it wasn't cool. So, so Hasbro takes it upon themselves to make the next version of the game. And they make the third edition D&D, which comes out in the year 2000, which, which coincidentally was when the world ended. Y2K. Hashtag Y2K. <laughs> now I can't say Hasbro has never made anything good. Why would you have said that? Oh, because I don't like most of their games. But that, apparently they revived D&D, so... Yeah. You know what? You get a pass in my book, Hasbro. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. I'll let you slide this time. Alright, um, so any questions about the history of D&D, Jake and David? So with Watsy buying D&D... And they they produce their own thing. Is that where we get all Watsy? of these campaign settings, like Wizards Wizards of the Coast? Yeah, oh my god! Yeah. Oh, I'm not one it's of faster those to say. It's faster to say. Not when you slow it down, though. Yeah, come on, keep up. Why waste time? Say lot word when few word do trick. <laughs> <laughs> so with Watsy buying D and D, is that where we get all these cool campaign settings, like Eberron or what's the what's the term for? 
the current one that's set in? Oh, um, Forgotten Realms. Forgotten, Forgotten Realms. Realms. Is that is that where those are introduced? Um, no. Or were those in the original game? During the original game of D&D, I guess if we want to walk through campaign settings real fast, uh, the first one ever was called Blackmore, and that was Dave Arneson's campaign was set there. Um, I think that Castle Greyhawk came out of that, and that came... So I, I'm not sure that exactly the difference between Grey, Blackmore and Greyhawk, but I know Greyhawk was the first official setting that D&D was set in. And it was this really, uh, frankly, a pretty cool idea where it was all these warring countries and they're always claiming land from each other and so the map's always in flux and they have really cool things and um probably the coolest thing that i told david about was uh the the big main npcs in the game were player characters who had leveled up enough to own land and become their own warlords or kings or whatever so and those are still in the game i know so if you hear spells like bigby's hand or morden kanan's um magic hound all these were characters that people played in the very first game and now they're just immortalized, which is so crazy to me. That's so cool. Because when you're coming up with a name, like Gygax had um, the Circle of Nine, is what they call it, these wizards in Greyhawk. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, like Bigby was part of it. But their names were Bigby, Digby, Sigby, like stupid, like goofy names you would come <laughs> up with. Because all of his wizards had to have the same stupid name. Because I think it was a, a dare from one of his friends. He had to do that. Exactly. <laughs> so I really love that so much that i like i've even incorporated npcs that used to be characters in these old games and they've they've grown in the lore so what i am trying to do um is have this legacy in my world to where old players like monastery that they were a part of is is still in the world and they named it and they thought of its flavor and everything but it's still there and higher level characters come back as npcs and i want to see like what happens when so many people get to interact with the world and the world grows up with them? Like, Oh, it's just so cool to see that. Yeah. I, I love it. I think it's a really cool idea. And, um, my intention for my continued world building is to just, you know, have this happen. So I love it. Um, okay. So that was the first setting was great Hawk. They also had, um, it was like, uh, it's called dragon Lance. I don't know if the setting came first or if the books came first, um, but this is a just a very classical like King Arthur and his knights setting, um, but with dragons and lances. I don't know much about it other than that. <laughs> um, there's a bunch more I'm going to forget and people will be mad, um, but that was in the early game. They had these. Um, later, they got the Forgotten Realms. Forgotten Realms was a setting made by a guy named Ed Greenwood. Um, he was writing books i think back in the 80s in 1987 wizards of the coast or watsi bought the rights to the setting and they put a bunch of their products there okay so wizards of the coast bought forgotten realms yeah and then they turned it into a dungeon of the dragon setting it or well it already was i think because um oh, okay. he greenwood was writing articles for their magazines and things oh, okay. and they just they liked it so they bought it that's cool um if you've played a video game set in like a dnd branded video game in the last 20 years it was probably set in forgotten realms including um, Neverwinter Nights, Baldur's Gate, Icewind Dale. Um, I think those are all available Waterdeep. on the iPad now. But wow. these are these are like classic games. Yeah, Waterdeep. Um, all all in Forgotten Realms. In 2000, they made third edition. In two, uh, 2002, they Wizards of the Coast ran a contest to establish a new D and D setting. So they um, oh. they put out a call to all these writers, all these people submitted entries, and they got 11,000 people Jeez. who submitted. I think it was a one page treatise on the summary of their world. Mm-hmm. Um, they narrowed it down to, um, I believe it was three or four guys, three or four of these writers, um, and they said, write us a, I think it was a 100-page treatment of your world. 
And out of the winners of that was a guy named Keith Baker who wrote a setting called Eberron, which is where we get the Warforged and um, the Dragon Marks. Like a lot of really cool stuff in this. And so when um, it was like late third edition and all the fourth edition, the official setting was Eberron and not the Forgotten Realms. So this brings me to talking about editions of D&D. So we've arrived. Wow. We have third edition. Um, as the game went on, if we can picture a graph of complexity, first or the original edition, the little brown books, very simple. The rules are very simple. The characters are very simple. Um, and we just added complexity. The graph climbs and climbs. So by the time we got to even late second edition, it looked a lot like third edition. And in third edition, if you've seen a stat block for a monster compared to a stat block for a monster on, in the original game, um, one of them will take half a page and one of them will take a sentence. Um, because there was something that happened. It's called G- Gygaxian naturalism. And in third edition, they wanted to have rules for everything you could possibly interact with in the world. Whether that is a door that you're trying to chop down. Now I need to have a difficulty class, armor class, hardness. Like, um, In a way, it was like they built a video game. Like Every duck walking down the road, every bird flying overhead, everything has a stat. And it must be written down. It was this... I think oh. it was this... Uh, kitchen sink game design everything was in there um the result of this was that it slowed the game down a lot so you have combats that take a lot longer um and and prepping the game takes a lot longer because monster rules are very specific because we're trying to be balanced we're seeing the shift in the video game world where balance is fun experiences need to be faster for players more exciting more highs and fewer lows less downtime right so the entire culture of entertainment is shifting all throughout from the 70s till 2000 and beyond right like it hasn't stopped changing um so three third edition was essentially a video game a very slow video game and 3.5 was the edition Mm -hmm. that changed and revised a lot of the stuff that was broken in that edition uh the other thing that uh, 3.5 and 3 third edition introduced was this idea of feats feats are this as you know from 5e it's this little um I guess you call it a rules addition. You can get to your character. It's a special ability or something that makes you different. And they're really cool to get because they're really fun because it's like, oh, I can do this special thing now. Like, oh, I can use two-handed weapons in one hand. That's great because I leveled up and I chose this feat. Um, the problem with this is that, once again, it slowed down game or game prep and character creation. We see this now with um, Pathfinder. does a lot of this. And, and Pathfinder is great for a certain type of audience. Not for me, but um, they have these feats. And um, the the business model for Watsi and for Paizo is just to keep on releasing books all the time, like 10 books a year. So you have new class features, new monster books, new DM guides, new dungeon books, adventures. Like there's so much stuff. No one person could really keep up with buying all of it. And it's kind of frustrating because it's like DLC overload, right? Like we, we want your money. Uh, um, and then we get fourth edition and the fourth edition of D and D was really controversial because it changed so much at the game. And uh, I think I'm going to do an entire episode on 4th edition, but I'll just hit on one highlight here. And that was 4th edition sought to fix a lot of the perceived problems in 3rd edition. The main problem I'll point out here is um, there was a blog article called Quadratic Wizards versus Linear Fighters. And this is explaining a power curve that happens over time. If you have a level 1 wizard and a level 1 fighter, the wizard will increase in power and damage and ability and usefulness and utility exponentially compared to a fighter, which is a linear graph, climbing, now he has two attacks, now he has three attacks, and so on. And so wizards are just grossly overpowered compared to fighters in every edition of the, the D&D game. Yeah, well, even hired 5e, levels, arguably. Disagree. Uh, they, I think they fixed a lot edition, of it. Fifth edition, it's very... In 5th edition, they fixed it a lot, but you still have wizards who can cast Wish at ninth level, and a fighter who can, like, you know, turn into, I don't know, maybe an avatar. 
Right, he's powerful, but he's not bending you reality. Do, you can do like seven or eight attacks in one turn. Right? Okay, well, it and doesn't matter. So, that's like, pretty good. The, the, isn't it kind of, so, so it's the exponential growth, but the wizard starts off like lower, right? Like they're squishy and they don't have many spells and the fighter yeah, they're, can probably kick they're, it. They're butt. almost Im- impossible to keep alive at low levels in old D&D. Yeah. And then there's this weird, uh, Gygaxian Darwinism. <laughs> I love that <laughs> adjective, uh, where the, the wizard passes the fighter and kind of leaves him in the dust at the higher levels, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's an unkillable just... God. Which is great. Yeah. So um, the fourth edition sought to s- attempted to fix this by giving all of the um, all the classes very specific abilities that are kind of like spells. And so now the fighter and the wizard are much more similar in power, but very different in skill set. But it's very interesting. The problem with this is that it didn't really feel like D anD D. It felt more like a board game, and people hated that because they're saying like, "Oh, they've changed the game that I grew up playing," and then now um, a single combat in fourth edition will take two or three times longer even than. Um, any combat, oh. like a level one combat with four NPCs um, against like a handful of uh, monsters, is thirty minutes per character in combat. Can you believe that? Thirty minutes. Like you would have a whole game night that is one encounter, and like it'll be a very tactically mm. satisfying encounter because everybody gets to like really maximize their skills. It attracts a certain type of player, but it it harmed the brand overall because people thought that D and D had changed into something they no longer recognized or enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, Pathfinder came out of this. There's a whole other scandal, but this is taking too long. So Pathfinder is also on the table. It was much more like third edition. People call it 3.75 because it was very, very similar um, compared to fourth edition, which was a totally different beast. All right. So now we're going to talk about this is what caused this old school revival, this renaissance. Sometime in the early 2000s, I mean like 2002, 2003, there was a guy named Matt Finch who wrote a PDF primer. And it was things that he'd realized. This is the difference between the old school game and what D&D had become. And so here's, um, here's my excerpts from his PDF. He wrote about what he called the four Zen moments in his realizations about this game. The first is rulings, not rules. In the original games, they had rules, general rules for most situations. But there's a lot of specifics that come up, edge cases that come up in D&D that you might not have to write a rule for. So um, let's say I want to uh, throw a flask of oil on the ground and light it on fire. The GM in, in the old game would say, well, I mean, fire should do some damage. So what, how about D6 damage per turn to anybody who steps in it, right? That's fine. You just make it up. You go. The players are like, that sounds fine. Oh, um, that's and you, how and I you do done. everything. <laughs> <laughs> so this is why I'm thinking Jake's going to really enjoy this next part because um, you're already doing a lot of this. Um, yeah. So this is rulings, not rules. And that's not to say that there are not rules in the old game. But as we saw, this incredible rules bloat in 3rd and 3.5, and, and I would say Pathfinder arguably as well, um, where they have a rule for everything. How to dig a hole, how fire works, how much damage you should do over time. Like Maybe there's a feat that affects how much fire damage you throw. Right? There's all these systems and rules interacting with each other. It's more like a computer game, but we don't have a computer. We just have our brains and it takes forever to do freaking anything yeah so that is rulings not rules just make the call and and move on the example that matt finch gives is what he called the ninja jump and he he gives you two scenarios one is um a player in third edition says um okay i want to jump off this cliff like this this ledge onto this bugbear below and like stab him in the back and the gm says well do you have the feet for like ledge jumping and the guy says no (laughs) he says well what uh, what I can do is you can you can jump and but you'll just deal your normal damage, and so the guy jumps and he fails his roll and the GM says okay you fall on the ground and now you're prone and you didn't even do damage and the player says but like 
So I did worse than I would have done with a regular attack because I didn't have the right feats and, and class features. Like, that's really frustrating. And so players are just uh, going to not, they're going to do the safe thing. Like, oh, well, it's better than I, I stand flat on the ground next to the guy and just roll an attack. And so this cool, like, the idea the player had to make the combat more exciting and more like a film, it doesn't get to happen. And that sucks. So I think this whole thing of, like, rulings, not rules, I really love that. And I feel like this is all related to a certain antagonism of the dungeon master or like a perceived antagonism because a lot of times we see in media especially especially like older media when they portrayed dungeons and dragons the dungeon master was kind of like ah i'm like he's a super villain that's trying to kill the players and it's just i don't think the initial correct me if i'm wrong but the old school renaissance it sounds like there's a degree of trust in the dungeon master that they will you know estimate the right amount of damage dice to roll for a fire you know, like there, there's a certain, you know, because that is kind of in a way like fudging the dice, but you let them do it. And mm -hmm. I'm totally okay with that. When someone is a dungeon master for me and I'm the player, I love being in the comfort of, of someone else's loving storytelling arms. You know, like I, I'm I'm excited to see what they do and I give them tons of room um, to do what they want and kind of tell the story, not tell the story for me, but give us the best path forward or the coolest options. Um, yeah. And yeah, I don't like the antagonistic because I feel like third edition especially is like, that's when the dungeon master is like, okay, how do I kill them? And it's like, ah. and they're making rules to like prevent the dungeon master from always killing them. And it's just weird. Yeah. There was um, the problem that I've heard. I think web DM explained it really well is that if you're prepping for an encounter in third edition, you would spend an hour of prep for every hour of gameplay. I think it was something like that. Um, it's a really unfriendly ratio. And so you had to make monsters. You oh, can modify them in third edition. It probably is more. But let's say you, there's a fight and you want to have this epic fight. So you build your monsters and you, you have to look at all your players' feats and weapons and spell spells and, and magic item combinations. And you have your monsters. And the players go into the combat and they wipe the floor with your monsters. How would a GM not be upset by that? Like you've spent so much of your time, your precious free yeah. time doing something that was just destroyed in a few rounds. Um, and so yeah. I think that would tend to lead to um, being upset, like uh, James being upset and being more antagonistic and more negative about their view of the players. Oh, that's just so non-conducive to what kind of game I want to play. Yeah, not good. Not good. Um, so back to the four Zen moments, um, the ninja jump. The, I mean, imagine how it would work in... Uh, basically in Jake's game, right? Like they say, oh, I'm on the, the ledge. I want to jump on this bugbear. You're like, okay, awesome. I'll give you like a, a bonus. That's the advantage awesome. to roll. Done. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. super easy. Like it doesn't I need to be hard. I want to reward creativity and risk taking, you know? Exactly. Jake, I feel like you're you're going to be an OSR lover by the end of this. Because I think you're already kind of playing <laughs> it anyway. Um, we'll see. All right. So the next of the Zen moments is um, Matt Finch said, he it's about player skill, not character ability. Um, he summarizes this with an example of describing what you're doing instead of rolling dice. So the example is there's a thief who's going into a dungeon and he's checking for traps. In 3.5, he says, okay, I go into the room and I check for traps. My trap roll is like plus six. I roll, okay, I got a 26, great. Um, and then the GM says, okay, you find the trap and you disable it. It's just this mechanical transaction back and forth and now you're done. Like nothing really interesting has happened other than, and, and, and the thief is obligated to do this because that's his job is to find the traps. Whereas if you're in the OSR, um, 
the thief says, okay, I pull out my 10-foot pole and I start tapping around on all of the floor tiles to see if anything is loose. And the GM says, you find one that is more loose than the other. And, the th- and then they basically describe, okay, I open the panel, I see a mechanism. He's like, I jam like my dagger into the gear so it can't turn, right? Like, so you're really thinking about and seeing this world more than just a flat skill roll and it happens. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about player skill as well, this means that your characters in general... Um, metagaming is not really as much of an issue in the old school as new because your character inherently must know things that you know as a player that they don't know, such as like engineering, language, writing, like basic logic, things that people wouldn't know pre-Renaissance, right? Like a peasant, a peasant doesn't know anything, um, but your character does. And so, or your player does and, and you embody that. So you're playing a game. It's like your mind versus the GM's mind to solve these problems. That's right, interesting because um, you're not really role playing at that point. You're, you're like it's almost as if you're transported into the world and you're trying to do your best. Because because exactly. I yeah I don't I don't like that because I don't want to be transported into the world. I want to be playing a theatrical performance role in the world. See, it's so this different. Is still yeah, like, that, that's for me. The problem with this is it's still a simulation. You're just simulating the world, and rather than just saying like hey i'm rolling to like pick a lock it's like well in real life i know how to pick a lock so i'm going to describe how i do it in games so that i can not have to roll no no so there's still um character skill like there's lock picking skills and things and you'll have a chance of failure but as for like determining what you should be looking for it's handled much more in a, a role-playing sense like metagaming like, is just kind of the, assured it's more part of the game yeah it's like a part of the game which i don't i, I kind of dislike i think that i i I prefer a story-focused game, but that's just my opinion. So you should go watch the WebDM episode on metagaming because they have some very controversial points where they say you cannot play D&D without metagaming on some level. And yeah. I was I was very surprised. I mean, I, I agree, but I think that's just... I don't know. I just, I've just i had so like, many cool moments with my players where like um, maybe someone is kidnapped um, and and they're like, man, they're like, I know this is a trap. But my character would go in like I love that where they're like, as a player, I know this is a bad move, but my character would have so much emotion built up that he would go into the trap just trying to save mm-hmm. the kidnapped person. Like, and I love that because that's like them saying I am different than this person I am embodying. Like I am role playing a character that is so vastly different from me, but it's still believable. Oh, and mm-hmm. maybe that's just my background with. But oh. That's what that's what I love. No, I I totally agree. I love that too because then you're like experiencing the story together. Yeah. Um, and mm. as we'll see, like there are definitely some drawbacks and differences in OSR. But the good thing about D and D games is because you can. The good thing about them is you can play them however you want. And so I would definitely encourage more about like, oh, I'm in the character. What would they do? But then also as me myself, I'm like, uh, I'm definitely gonna check for traps here, right? Um, so it's like you're funneling your mm. consciousness into this little person in the game. So it, maybe yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, Different, but it's different from the way we play D anD D. But it's it's not just pure metagaming. Anyway, it's it's weird. No, um, it's the like other a thing simulation. about yeah, yeah, or a verisimilitude is the word uh, for it. It's a believable, logical series of conclusions and consequences. Yeah. Right. The other thing about player skill and not character ability. Um, so character creation in OSR is really really fast. Um, you've seen people roll character like you roll your dice to get your stats, and then that determines your character. Um, and the reason you can do this is because in those games, the ability scores really didn't matter very much compared to 5e. Like, if you roll your character in 5e, 
um, there's a good chance you will have a really bad underpowered character or something that's a lot more a lot stronger than they should be um, because the stats yeah. derive in a very important way and, and it's like a tight machine and you don't want to throw randomness into a Swiss watch because it is very tight but mm -hmm. in uh, the old game it's not so tight and it doesn't matter because once again this is about what you can do with your character and not what your character can do which was a, uh, a convention that had really developed in an I would say a negative way over the the two decades of uh, D and D up to that point. Right. Um, I've mentioned this before. Um, this, so the next Zen moment was heroic, not superhero. Um, I've talked about, we oh, want I to, love this one. Uh, in old D and D you become Batman. You never become Superman. Like you just have more tools in your utility belt, more options, more, yeah. uh, more knowledge, right? Like you understand how to play the game better. Um, the, this just keeps things at a human scale. Um, you, you won't become Hercules, but you'll become like a politician, a governor, a mayor, uh, a, or a baron, landlord. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Like you will progress, but this is like power that is attainable in the real world. And and because the game was made by these old war game people, they know a lot about history and a yeah. lot about um, keeps and castles and peasants and uh, serfs, whatever. Um, that's probably beyond my scope. I don't really get into this as much, but that's just what you did, and that's why their world has all of these characters and personalities who live on is because they would level up and become powerful um, personalities. Yeah. So I really like this and it, it's also why I like playing with lower level characters. Like um, mm -hmm. I would be fine playing with the character who's like four levels lower than the rest of my party just to be able to role play that out and see how fun that would be. That is like unheard of though, because 5e is so based on like this superhero fantasy of like, being becoming a god like it is the power skills are just enormous but i like playing at level one where like you can be assassinated or like um you're gonna have to sprint away when you see a vampire like that is super i don't know there's something grungy and kind of gritty about it that i like that i, I like ha feeling fear and that's why i love playing games like call of cthulhu um or whatever that you, you ran that game for us that was so fun. Um mm. it was kind of a Cthulian esque game. Uh and it was it was terrifying. And I love feeling things in a game other than just like kissing my muscles and being like, Man, we're pretty badass, aren't we? <laughs> you know? It's, it's, like I wanna feel scared. <laughs> it's really interesting when you have characters who are powerless rather than powerful because they have to make so many more decisions that have much more of an impact because any one decision could get them killed. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I, I, maybe we've discussed this before where game systems will change the way players make decisions. And even if we just played 5e and the only thing you change is that you never gain health after level one, you just keep the same level of health. And so you oh, have this fragility oh, as you go up so level, cool. like you can die like in one shot because the game damage scales, obviously. Um, like people and, would be hiding behind cover i love that yes you would you would suddenly have people really eager to use cover in every single encounter or um we'll get to combat as war here in a second um uh, make sure they never really have to fight a fair fight because in a fair fight they will die yeah I i've got to say this real quick so this is this happened in my game when uh basically in one of my older campaigns they invented gunpowder like the bad guys invented gunpowder and I introduced that by having, like, the main wizard show up and be like, okay, guys, we need and he just is shot in the head and dies. And so now all the players are like, what? And they're like, they, from that then on, they were, like, more scared. They were taking cover more. 
um, because, you know, suddenly they any peasant can pick up a revolver um, and can fire all six of the shots and each of them does like D12 damage. And it's like, Jeez. whoa. Yeah, like it changed the game and made it scary um, despite them being at a decent level. And so, yeah, I really like this. This, oh, it's good to get back in the dirt, you know? There's Yeah, there's something really... I don't know if refreshing is the right word, but very different from what we've come to expect from D&D, where combat is not lethal. Um, even as far back as third, well, late second and then third edition, um, it got a lot harder to kill player characters because people don't, they want to get invested. They want to care about their character. They don't want it to just suddenly die. Yeah. And so there's a lot more armor, there's a lot more health and a lot less death. Um, and, and there's systems mm-hmm. that support that. Um, there's an article, I'll, I'll link it to you later, um, that just tracked how healing has changed from the first edition of the game till now, where in the in original D and D you would heal one D three hit points for every week of bed rest. <laughs> yes. Whoa. Yes. Like it That's was so incredibly slow. And so, I mean, think of how that changes the pace of your story and the way you wow. use your heroes. Like you would have a backup because yeah. your guy is just down this week, sick in bed. And, and then you see, like, in 4th edition, wow. they had healing surges. Like, everybody, like, it's almost impossible to kill a 4th level, or a 4th edition character. Huh. That's and so I, interesting. I don't know if I've ever seen a 5th edition character die. Yeah. Oh, I've yeah. I've seen a few recently, and it's 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 adding to my game a lot. Because it, it does feel weird, you know? Because mm-hmm. characters feel like, like, you know, it's like when Superman died, it was a huge deal. Because it was, like, almost impossible, you know? And... I really like kind of taking some of that OSR and, and plugging it into fifth because uh, wow. I want to feel the grit and the grime and the fear. There was a game I heard about. I think it's a um, Jason Bourne or James Bond or some kind of spy game. And all the characters, all the player characters and NPCs in the game have D6 health. Actually, I think they have six health. But every weapon in the game does a minimum of one D6 damage because a bullet can oh. kill you. Like there's a chance it can kill you at any time. Yeah. And that kind of lethality is going to make you play differently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so we're back to heroic and not superhero. So um, we talked about keeping things low level. Um, there's You mentioned this already, Jake. Gygaxian natural selection through character death. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw this. We, we'll talk about Dungeon Crawl Classics here in a moment. But um, th- if you've ever played a video game called XCOM, you start off with a bunch of really crappy oh, yeah. rookies who can't aim straight with their rifle and they pee their pants and run every time somebody dies they're just no good but as you go through the game natural selection happens your your worst guys will die off and what you're left with is this cream of the crop highly trained very hardened strike team who can do anything and and when mm-hmm. one of those dies in the late game like it's heartbreaking because you put so much time <laughs> into that. and that model yeah. is a lot more like what dnd looks like so um one of our um uh, I think in episode nine, we talked about character backstories and how at level one, you've done all this stuff. Like, oh, I was a soldier and I did this and that and this. And yet, why am I a level one yeah. still? Like, shouldn't I have been at least a two or a three or four? Because I have all this yeah. history. Um, in the original game, in OSR games, your history is created by the players. You play it out in the game. Mm-hmm. And, and Jake, yeah. you talked about this too, where um, the things that are happening in the world happened because a player made it happen like the monasteries were made because the monks created them like this is is great world building yeah yeah and and it does take time and a lot of you mentioned earlier our culture 
became faster with the internet. Everything was on demand and people wanted their entertainment kind of blasted at them pretty quickly. Um, but in order to mm-hmm. perform this natural selection and in order to begin to grow to care about a character that you've had since level zero, um, it takes time. And it's not like you don't start off as a superhero. Um, so it's, yeah, it's interesting because it is, it does feel old school because, you know, Gygax and them couldn't watch Netflix when they got bored. You know, mm-hmm. that this was like so fun to invest in because they had the time and didn't have other means of entertainment they could have access to so quickly. Yeah, I think that there is, uh, maybe this is me getting in my soapbox a little bit, but we've seen a change in, um, like you're saying, the this pace of entertainment being delivered. Um, but I think we'd also see mm-hmm. a change in attention span and in focus and in yeah. patience. I know that um, like compared to even my parents, all the all my brothers and sisters are much less patient and much um, much more eager to just be uh, entertained, right? Instant gratification is a thing. And so games have mm-hmm. changed to reflect that. And I love games. Like video games are my one of my favorite things in the whole world. Um, but I don't know if going if I was alive in the 70s and I played the old game where you play for weeks at a time to get to level 2, let's say. Yeah. Um, and then you play the game where you're you're just like throwing fireballs and wands of magic and like you're healing fast. Like that does seem more fun. And, and I understand why the game went in that direction. The yeah. other thing that uh, uh, that is different and other systems change is that treasure was XP in these games, which just blew my mind uh, earlier in the year when I found out about this. And so what this means is you go into a dungeon or into the wilderness or whatever, and you find a, a treasure of some kind. Um, and you don't you don't get the, the XP right away. You have to take it back to town and sell it or spend it or, or do something with it. You can't just be in your pockets. Yeah. And then it is scored as XP. And divide it into the group's XP pool. And then you have a chance of leveling up. Killing monsters was not the main way to get XP. It was about 75% in the favor of treasure and then 25% um, the monster XP. So this, once again, is a well, system change. It changes how players interact with the game. I think going with the metaphor you said earlier where OSR is more Batman and the new school stuff is more Superman. Um, literally, mm-hmm. the joke is that Batman's superpower is he's rich. And so, like, this is, you know, it it fits into that. Like, if you're filthy rich, you're going to be able to deck yourself out in fancy plate mail and buy some magic items. Um, So the logic is there, but it is revolutionary. Like, it just, it is a big pill to swallow. Like, what if you kill a kraken and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean? Like, do you just get not better at combat at all because (laughs) all of its treasure is down there? Hmm. Interesting. Um, there's also a variant I've seen in some of these systems where if you have a bunch of treasure and you go to town and you choose to blow it and not spend anything, you don't buy anything useful. You just spend it on, uh, women and wine and, uh, partying basically, then you'll get a bonus. You get more XP from that treasure, like 20% more than you would have if you spend it on your own stuff. And I'm like, Oh, I would do that. (laughs) I get party. I get lit all the time. Yeah. So you're encouraged to just be wasteful because of the, novels and the stories that the original game came from that's what the characters did all the time conan just like blows yeah. his money on a party and yeah. then he's like well i'm he wakes up in the street and he has nothing he's like well i gotta go rob another guy if i want to eat tonight sounds like <laughs> me in go real kill life. another monster <laughs> <laughs> yeah i go slay the snake mistress i go fight medusa yeah so that was heroic not superhero um there is just one more of his zen moments and that was he said forget about game balance um, you've heard me tooting this horn really since the podcast started, and that is 
game balance in D&D, I think, is a you're chasing after a unicorn that might not exist, and you can make every attempt to balance it, and you do all the work, and you crunch your numbers, whatever, um, but chances are your players are, are either going to run away with the combat or run away from the combat because it's too hard. Uh, I think I found the best way to achieve balance within my Dungeons & Dragons games, and that is just to rip out half of the pages in all of my Dungeons & Dragons textbooks. <laughs> what? What do you mean? I snap my finger Why? and then rip half oh of them out. Oh my gosh. You came back for a Thanos oh reference, David? Gosh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly balanced. As all be. things should be. <laughs> <sighs> um, so this this would so, be combat yeah. as war, right? Um, yeah, in a sense. Because you're, you're not building encounters. You're just saying, okay, here's a, a castle. They have this many guards. I know the guards have this kind of stat. If, and then if the players want to go in, you're like, well, let's see what happens. I don't. They're probably going to die, but if, you, if you're clever enough and you you know cut the rope bridge with all of the army on the bridge, you know you're gonna <laughs> you'll succeed. Oh, that's brutal. I, I just okay. So this is a rant I've probably made on the show before, but I'm gonna make it again. I was on Reddit and I saw a post, and it was this guy who said, "Hey, this is my. I was a first time dungeon master. Went through the Rise of Tiamat game." Um, and all my players died at the end and it was so much fun. They didn't stop Tiamat, uh, but we just had a great time and I almost dropped my phone. I was like, what? You lost, like you ruined it. It's, it's over. Like the the whole thing was a failure. And, and I I was like, oh my gosh, like I, (laughs) I realized how much my, uh, combat as cinema is really about the good guys winning in the end. And they might oh. lose and have tragic things along the way. And they might lose some encounters. Um, and some of them might die. But in the end, Tiamat is stopped. Because if Tiamat, like, isn't stopped, then the world ends. Or it becomes a different post-apocalyptic game that I haven't planned for. And so, I <laughs> I don't know. Like, I was so frustrated at this guy. And he's like, yeah, Tiamat kind of wiped the floor with my players. And we all had a good time. I'm like, what? What? <laughs> just so angry because i'm like i I, in my mind i was like that their game failed and it's just so interesting my perspective of i don't know why i just if you don't beat the bad guy in the end i don't know if it's just the storytelling you know story circle um but you have to beat the bad guy in the end if you don't it how do you feel how do you remember that game probably not i don't know i think that's interesting because you're almost subverting the narrative because all right, the next campaign is like, what happens when you live in a world where heroes fail and Tiamat does rise? Like, yeah, I and think I'm that's actually really doing interesting. A, yeah, and I actually right now I'm doing a post-apocalyptic game where something like that happened. Um, but in general, I don't think I subverted the narrative. I think in my games I fulfill the narrative because narrative is about payoff. You know, it's set up punchline, set up punchline, hmm. set up punchline. But you're, you're just setting up for like, an even long-term payoff. So like... After Tiamat has killed your whole party before, when they go and fight him again with new characters, then you get you finally get that payoff after you finally beat him. Like, yeah, I but, I think there's a point, but it's also like know. the next time that they go through and they fight Tiamat, I think it's interesting because it's like, yeah, we lost before, and they have that in mind of you know, like Thanos yeah, snapping just... half the galaxy away. Like that's like. <sighs> 
that that's that's a they, loss. That's a loss, but it's also interesting because it's like, where do you go from there? And it's well, with the time question shouldn't be. It's like, well, we lost, so we're done. It should be like, how do we how do we get to the next step? I think fundamentally, I guess, it comes okay, down so, to what you're, what you're looking for to get out of the game. Yeah, and I think I want to fulfill arcs, and I want to have stuff that people will remember fondly um, and feel a sense of like accomplishment, but also. I've built this world for what five, six years, and so I can't have Tiamat destroy it because it destroys all of my future plot hooks, all of my future campaigns, like all of my setting is gone. Like years of my so, free time. So by that and logic, so, Avengers Infinity War is a bad movie to you because they destroyed half the universe. No, Dude, I see what Jake is saying. But like, like okay, sorry, sorry, I gotta address the Marvel thing real quick. First off, it's Disney. <laughs> Disney, like, for they have movies planned for these characters that are dead. They're obviously not dead. Like, look at their roster. Like, there, there's a new Spider-Man movie next year. <laughs> How does that work? I mean, obviously they're coming back. And I guess having read Infinity War, it's like, okay, he does that. Then they go back. Um, okay, Will, sorry. I had to, I have to, I, yeah. Okay, so uh, I think it just comes down to whether or not you want to have a game where you're telling a story or a game where the players are just playing a game to find out what happens. And I feel like um, the mindset of the old school game is it's more of a game. The players are in control of what's happening. And if they fail, they fail. It's kind of brutal and it's kind of Game of thrones But I see Jake's point, like, because Jake is more of a storyteller and he's looking for a satisfying conclusion to everything. And so even if Tiamat would have killed the party, you would have fudged the roles and manipulated the situation in such a way that they win. Or maybe, yeah, that maybe Tiamat kills all of them except one. But, like, that one person mm-hmm. barely pulls it out. Like, yeah. so there's still immense loss and pain and, and tragedy. But in the end, the plane of existence is saved. And people remember it well. I don't know. I can't imagine looking back at a game being like, yeah, we spent a full year playing this cool game with all these complex arcs. And the final boss destroyed us completely. Like, I wouldn't look <laughs> back on that memory and be like, that was fun. I'd be like, man, that's that that would bug me for years after. I don't know. Mm. It just I need that home Luckily run. For us, uh, D and D is a toolkit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, gonna, Jake, I'm gonna just, run you through a weird. whole campaign, and then you're gonna your whole party's gonna die at the end. Yeah, it would just be you trolling me and trying to teach me a lesson, but it would prove my point that I am sad. <laughs> no, and you're gonna enjoy it. You're gonna remember that game and think back. <laughs> oh that my was god. Great. David just said he's going to troll me and I'm going to like it. That is the no, most David thing I don't think you're gonna like I've it. ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not wrong. Now, so like the thing that I see about this whole idea of the combat is war um, and losing that last encounter is that the players would know that it was on them that they failed. Like it was nothing. I'm not David. I'm not trolling. I didn't fudge any roles. Like this is the situation. You weren't ready. You weren't prepared. You weren't clever enough and you lost. And I think that that, um, at least for some players, will be more satisfying than knowing that the GM made it happen, right? But I also think that most players don't want to lose in this modern day and age. Maybe the player, like some people do, surely, like will be totally okay with the situation, the way it shook out. But I don't think it's a modern day and age thing. I think from the epic of Gilgamesh on, like the good guys win is kind of the universal trope of all human storytelling and so right and so that goes back to my it takes point a lot about of like D it D is not necessarily a storytelling game unless you want it to be but the old game is more of a oh. game 
and less of a storytelling That's game. weird. Stories come out of it hmm. the same way they come out of your X mod yeah. squad surviving ten missions together and then one of them dying randomly and you're just like no and it crushes your soul and you want to die. Hmm. Oh, but it is what it is. No, this is so interesting. Hmm. All right. So uh, the final thing from Matt Finch's PDF. It's only uh, thirteen pages long, so it's not very long. Um, he talks about the way of the Ming vase. He says if you're fighting in a room and there's a big treasure on a pedestal nearby, it's a Ming vase, giant and priceless. Um, there's not a rule that handles when the Ming vase gets hit. But he says in OSR, in that moment, it's more fun if the Ming vase is in peril. And so the, the DM is just going to be making up, like they're interacting with this piece of the, the scene without any rules at all. Whether that's like a, a critical miss, the arrow hits the vase, whatever. Like he says, the the vase must be hit because it's yeah more like the real world and it's more fun. It's just is this kind of like Chekhov's gun? I think so. I, yeah, that that makes sense. I love kind of the art of revealing information um, in a way that like mm-hmm. both surprises and kind of fulfills a cliche of of stuff happening around them with their environment so yeah I, I think i agree with that one wholeheartedly a big part of the original game uh in it wasn't in the little brown books it was in the first edition dnd i believe they had appendix n and this was all the fiction that uh guy Gax and his team considered inspirational to, when they made the game and you can go oh, find that online huh. um I, apparently there are appendix in book clubs where guys will get together or well, people will get together and they will read through every book that they have on that list that's cool and so this, cool. this includes Conan the Barbarian, um, a bunch of like yeah. Jules Verne stuff, everything by Lovecraft, um, yeah, uh, John Carter of Mars, Fafford and the Grey Mauser, the Dying Earth series, um, all this stuff. And that and so the feeling you get is not Lord of the Rings. You, Lord of the Rings is what no. you would call a um, uh, what like a, a high story, traditional a grand high fantasy, st- well, yeah. right? An epic quest. Uh, if you read yeah. Conan. You're gonna see him waking up like with a, a hooker on one arm, and then he goes out and kills the snake demon and steals his it's treasure very episodic. and then spends it all. It's very serial. It is. It, it was pulp, pulp fiction from like the yeah. 30s. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the same thing with John Carter, um, which is what they call it, uh, sword and planet fiction, because it's like science fiction and fantasy and this kind of weird uh, feeling. Um, Fafford and the Grey Mauser essentially both player or both characters are kind of like thief fighters and they just get into all kinds of trouble in this really um, uh, frankly kind of a rotten city and they're both criminals but it's fun because they get into hijinks um, yeah. and then the Dying Earth which is where we get our uh, Vancean spellcasting system in 5e um, is so far in the future it's not post-apocalypse it's just like post-society that the sun has redshifted and will soon erupt into supernova and so all that's left on the planet Earth is the remnants of old technology and the people who kind of know how to use it. But it's written like a fantasy story, this. like Narnia. Um, it's it's an interesting read. I read it uh, the whole time I was in Israel uh, on my phone. But oh, really? Um, yeah, and it's you that's can find cool. it online, I think. But it's written like fantasy, but it's actually sci-fi f- through the perspective of people who don't understand what they're looking at. Mm. And it, it's I, like I, Adventure Time. Yeah, yeah. Adventure Time is the closest analog you can think of um, in modern modern stories. Um, but yeah, so when you look at all these books, you get an idea that this D&D game is incredibly different from what it is now, where it's like we've had Lord of the Rings movies and we've had Game of Thrones now and we have all these cool things, but it's nothing like the fiction that the original game. Yeah. Came. And that fiction does feel 
old school, right? Like it doesn't, mm-hmm. like I don't know if they could yeah. make a good Conan the Barbarian TV series. I think they're trying to, but I don't know. It feels like a relic of a bygone era. I don't know. It feels like kind of a pulp adventure novel thing. I don't it's know. Become it's become history it's and it's no longer flavor. old school. <laughs> it is a different flavor. I I should mention I highly recommend the Dying Earth books because there's nothing like it I've ever read. Hmm. And surprisingly violent. It's At on one point, list. um, an evil wizard, uh, he absorbs a spell, which is kind of like a software platform you install in your brain, and then once you use the spell, it's out. Um, he meets a monster on the road, and he just uses a spell that makes him spin to death. Oh, oh my god! And, and it's uh, described the... pretty well. Oof. Yeah. That thinking of the logical, physical pain that would be. Oh my gosh. That's it. Okay. Yeah. That's on yeah. my list. <laughs> um, all right. So that is the fictional inspiration for the game. Um, now we've kind of talked about this. This is the downsides to this kind of game. I have run a handful of these uh, in systems, uh, different systems, but this is what I noticed. So um, there's just much less story in this type of game. Like, if you're coming into it and you're like, oh, I want to have this awesome guy who, like, was the de- the prince of the realm who was deposed and now I'm in hiding. Like, no. Like, you're <laughs> nobody. You're nothing. Yeah. You don't have parents. Ray, you're nothing. They sold you for <laughs> drinking money. Great. Great part of that movie. Oof. But that's not to say you couldn't insert some story-like elements into the game. Um, I've seen stuff where uh, it, you come at level one with a career, just like a little background. So you could be, like, a, a fighter who is a buccaneer or a fighter who was like a knight you know whatever it's something very simple it's kind of like character backgrounds from 5e um but just you know two words instead of 20 potato salesman uh uh, yes i'll take two please (laughs) i'll take two (laughs) potatoes please um the other downside is that your character details aren't really significant because it doesn't matter um what matters is your ability as a player to get the most squeeze and ring the most usefulness out of your character even if that means sending your weaker character or your henchman to his death to keep yourself alive because oh, once again natural yeah. selection real um, but the the downside or i guess the, the other side of that is that once you do survive and you have a character that's a high level you know everything they've gone through and you respect them and you respect the other player characters who've come alongside you on this adventure it's all about the respect yeah um mm. the, the also i mentioned character death is a lot more common because you're starting out with like d6 health and theoretically you could have one health um that that can suck for people <laughs> oh, so and i know some people play. don't i think didn't your characters at your bachelor party have one health jake uh one had one health and the other two each had two health <laughs> <laughs> perfect and they survived the whole so adventure fun. no yeah no they really didn't <laughs> Well, until the oh, last man. scene, and then you got them killed. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh. So yeah, the game can be pretty brutal um, with character death, but because character generation takes 10 minutes or less, um, it doesn't really matter. Like, if you're dying in the first dungeon, like, who cares? I'm just going to roll another character, determine their class, and I'm going to go, and I'm not going to get really attached to them. It's yeah. the same idea. Yeah. Um, in board games, randomness is more acceptable if the game is very short. But if there's a long game uh, and the outcome hinges on a random outcome, it feels terrible and people hate it. So this is why Monopoly yeah. is fun at the start and terrible at the end. But that's not to say Monopoly is all yeah, that chance because it's certainly not. That's so true. It's mostly random chance. <laughs> Actually, the best strategy for Monopoly is just sitting in jail. Fun fact. 
What? No, it's not. Late game? Yeah, because oh, then you can game. just That's choose the best strategy to for sit life. down three turns and <laughs> not have to... You don't do anything. You won't, don't risk paying anyone anything. Yep. Well, today I learned about Monopoly. You mentioned the four... Um, the four Zen moments uh, from that PDF, mm-hmm. the quick primer for old school gaming. Um, yes. It's crazy because I really, really love two of them and I really dislike two of them. So like I really love the rulings, not rules. I think I already play that way and it just makes the game quicker. Um, and I really love the heroic, not superhero, like mm-hmm. not super heroic. Like I like more dark and gritty and lower level campaigns. Um, but at the same time, I don't like kind of the inherent metagaming of it of like you are transporting your brain into the body of a like, you know, medieval knight. Um, I like role playing as a character because of my theatrical kind of background. Um, and also I don't I don't like combat as war because the idea of like my world burning because of some players mistakes is uh, it's heart wrenching. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I've, I've realized I incorporate a lot of the great parts of OSR into my games. Um, for- so that's, I think it's interesting because um, also like as, as big of an advocate for combat as war as I am, I don't think I would do it a hundred percent of the time. I think in general, like I would have this world with a high degree of verisimilitude, um, but there's still encounters that are key encounters and things that, like the story moved here and here's the, the conclusion of everything and it's going to be planned and thought out it'll be a combat of sport kind of encounter um because you're right i don't think i want my campaign to just fall apart because tmat rolled a 20 a few too many times or something um so it's yeah. degrees like every every part of the the four zen moments can kind of be fine-tuned to where you want it like i want faster character creation in 5e i just do um but i don't want random scores in 5e in fact i'm not sure i want 5e in a lot of ways um for reasons i'll get to um but as for um you said, oh, oh, character, player skill. Um, so I've already tried to roll a lot of this into my current game. So we had, we're playing in Schult still, the Tomb of Annihilation. Mm-hmm. And one of my, my players said he wanted to use his survival to look for edible food. And I said, well, just describe to me how you're doing that. And he did. And I thought it was very good. It was very convincing. He had kind of a plausible um, scene. And I said, okay, great. And here you go. Here you found like some kind of weird Schult and fruit. And he's like, great. Because um, I know he has the skill for the character. But I also, like, it's not interesting to me just to roll to make it happen. And we had enough time that I can spend 10 seconds on having him describe what, how he does it. Well, and so that's how I, I come at that. that. But I yeah. mean, that's, but that's, isn't that's that how the character? But, like, that's not the player metagaming for fruit. That would be his, he's playing the role of that character. And that character would logically look for fruit right right and so i'm worried that maybe i misdescribed how i understand it to work in osr where like the the back to the thief tapping on the panels for traps like the player knows to do this even if the so first level thief who doesn't necessarily know that other than i guess he's a thief so he's been around like that's how i would run it is the way i described it's not like the player saying okay i know i have the map of the dungeon and i know everything so let's go Okay, no, no, let me, let me give a prime example of what I'm thinking with that, um, with this kind of metagaming. Uh, my fear is that I'm playing an OSR, like, hardcore, gritty, combat as war game, um, and my players come up to a stronghold, um, and it's super high level, and then some of the characters who might be, let's just say they're engineers, they look at me and go, my character wants to build a trebuchet, and, <laughs> and like, I'd be like, okay, like, 
the, the no, peasants wouldn't no, no, know how to build the trebuchet. That. So that's okay. So that's no, no, what no, I okay, thought so, you meant. No, no, no. It's because it's not like oh well, I I know like like you say an engineer. Um, but your character, because there still is like you're filtering what you do know into what your characters can do. So in a, in a lot of ways, it's still like D&D. But I'm saying that your personal skill as a player is also highly important to succeeding. Oh, okay. So, so maybe, yeah. the, so maybe doesn't, the player the doesn't hold your hand. Mm, yeah, that's a better way to say it. But the okay. player might say, yeah, okay, no, I want to okay. go to town and find a guy who can build a trebuchet. Right. Like that's something that okay. their character could do. Okay, so I think I understand right. it better now. So I would say I like 2.5 out of the four. But I I know, it's just so fun. It's I think that your game is looking a lot more OSR, and so is mine. But there's definitely things that I kind of uh, turn off and on as needed. Um, and I, I think so, OSR fits better for a more one-shot or a three-shot or like like shorter campaigns, right? Yeah, and maybe that's an important distinction to make is um, because 5e really does lend itself to big epic campaigns because you have character arcs and background and character development and stuff. Um, I guess the issue is, uh, so David and I talked about this at length one day, um, how 5e, um, as we described it a few episodes ago, is like Mario and Mario Kart or in Smash Brothers. It's just this really solid, um, I don't want to say middle of the road because that makes it sound bad, but it's like the center of this type of game that can go in either direction. So if you want more of that rules crunch, then you're going to add in feats. You're going to add in your custom like rules for everything, like Mm 3.5. Or if you're like me and Jake, like we're just going to kind of hand wave or not use big chunks of the game that we aren't fond of. Because D&D ultimately is a monster fighting game. Uh, Well, so yeah. So here's, here's what I say to that. Um, You, you, the metaphor you used was Mario, which I think it's a perfect metaphor, right? D&D 5e is Mario. Like random strangers, like my <laughs> parents would know who Mario is, which I like. It's, it's getting popular. But if if you want to have a new way to play, have Mario gain some weight and have him put on a yellow cap <laughs> oh my and flipped up. And he's Wario, you know? Have him have a growth spurt and change his costume to purple and have him be the best character ever. And he's Waluigi. Oh, no. Um, no. so like you can, you can, <laughs> sorry, um, you can mod the game pretty easily. So I think 5e, since it is, I would say middle of the road, standard, mm-hmm. um, streamlined because of that, it provides the, the biggest tool belt to make the best game out of it. Um, mm-hmm. y- it would be like, so go- carrying on that Nintendo metaphor, I'd rather introduce my parents, um, to Mario as a character than like mecha ghost bowser because they would just be confused by that you know and so i think there are people who would love to play mario kart with mecha ghost bowser but in the end it's easier to show someone mario and be like yeah this is mario this is what he does and i don't know i I like that about 5e a lot the problem with 5e is that because it's so middle of the road it's not capable of being the best storytelling system or the best you know game because it is, it's like, hey, I'm sitting in the middle and I'm a little bit of everything, but I'm not the best at anything. Hmm. So it's a jack of all I trades. I mean, I'm trying to think what 5e could do better as a system for my game. And I, I am coming up blank. It gives me a toolbox. Get rid of all the numbers. And it says, I mean, you don't but see, I don't think my players would playing. like that. But I know really? my players wouldn't like that. No, 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 no. That The numbers are fun for them. Trust me, if I, if mm. if none of them like numbers, there would be no numbers. 
And we would just be playing an improv game, like a long form dramatic uh, fantasy improv game, which sounds amazing to me, but I am a weirdo and not many people would like that. Um, so no, my, my players love numbers, but my perfect game mm. is with a bunch of crazy people, you know, that, that are basically just acting for fun. Um, so yeah, I can't think of anything 5e could do differently. I think it's middle of the road Mario Mario that does the trick for me. <laughs> I mean, if you like being in the middle of the road, then I guess it's good for you. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I would love to uh, see maybe King Boo or some weird color Yoshi uh, to carry that metaphor even farther. Um, sometimes for one shots, but the bulk of my my games are always going to be 5e maybe until sixth edition comes around um, just because it is so easy to introduce people to. It is like Jack of all trades. And that's what I want for a tool belt is something for everyone. Hmm. So um, the thing I would change about 5e. Oh, Oh, there we go. So character creation, I think is way too much um, for starting out players, like players who've already played 5e and like want to play that game with all these feats and stuff. Like our class series are awesome. I'm excited to play a rogue, but then there's this kind of fatigue that I, I feel in a combat and I watch David exploit every little corner of the rules to get seven attacks on one guy in one turn. And I, and I find that vexing because that's the game that we're playing. And I, I can have so much fun without that. Like, I guess a lot of the problems I have with 5e. But Dave, I don't think David could. No, that's what he did last night. No, I know. And I'm saying I don't think David would have as much fun if you took that away from him. I disagree. Would you, David? Here's the thing. When okay. I, uh, when I'm playing a game, I'm playing a game. When I'm playing, when I'm telling a story, I'm telling a story. I cannot mix both. So if I'm playing five E, okay. it's a game because there that's... are numbers. If I'm playing Fiasco, wow. that's a storytelling system. So I'm telling a story. Mm-hmm. It's like what, it's what if two one different of, modes of thinking. So I what if one of play... your best friends is telling a story? Then can you tell the story with him, or is it still a game to you? It's still a game. Like I'll always oh, like that's if there are so numbers, I'll always prioritize. Oh my gosh! Wow, it, it's that just is the way so my brain works. Like it's hard. It's yeah. so hard for me to step out of like an optimal mode for the sake of story. So like that's just like if I'm playing five E and there are numbers, I'm going to min max. <laughs> like that's just the way my brain works. I am works. literally the exact opposite. Like I will make a purposely suboptimal character because I feel like it'd be more fun to role play. <laughs> wow. This is, See, that, that would just drive me insane. I'm just is, like, this character this is, is bad, so... like, I don't want to play him. Like, it would, yeah, well, so that's just how I am, which is why I don't want, and like, I, I, when I want to play a story-based game, I don't want to have numbers, because I don't want to have to think about that, because I want to focus on telling a story, and having to focus on, how, like, calculating the optimal amount of damage that juggle. I can do in a single turn. It's, I don't want to yeah. juggle it. Yeah, it's too much work. Yeah, so that's, that's why that's I don't like so my for specifically being a story-based game, because for me, I can't have the fun of playing a story-based game when there's numbers huh weird no i'm i'm there with david maybe uh my brain definitely works differently because i can i would make the suboptimal move and play like in character but i know that like that that's an abhorrent idea for david um but part of our (laughs) conversation was that if i want to play like a dungeon crawl battle game explore the wilderness like get in fights um i want my game to be all about that and then if I want to have a game where there's story and like intrigue, I want my game to be all about that. And so in a way, like I enjoy D&D 5 just fine, but in my perfect world, I play one or the other because D&D is really in the middle. 
Oh, that's so interesting. So it's you like, guys it's like essentially get off the pot, like <laughs> to make a better metaphor. Um, that's a little earlier in that stage of digestion. Um, if so, basically, you guys would prefer to go to a fine dining restaurant of a very specific, you know, like East Asian cuisine. Um, as opposed to going to a huge buffet that has some Chinese food. Yeah, because like, the I would prefer has to go to the buffet. Lower quality food everywhere. But the but I, but there's hmm. stuff for everyone. And if you're inviting your friends out to eat, some of your friends won't like high end cuisine <laughs> of East Asian food. They if you want to get the most people to come to your party, you're gonna go to a buffet. I don't know. That that's when I'm gonna how I interpret. Yeah, that but metaphor. when I'm hungry for East Asian food. I'm going to invite my friends who enjoy that. And I'm not going to bring my friends who want yeah. French fries and I think, chicken teddies. I think that, yeah, I think that is true. Um, but. So I'd rather, I'd rather if you want have it, an experience where everyone is enjoying in the, in the, the depth of the experience rather than having a little bit for everyone. And to, just like, we are just taking metaphors the to their logical conclusion, but I would like to continue <laughs> because um, if you have a child, and you're you have to feed them food that will lead them to one day liking some exotic cuisine. You can't just take them there and say, "Hey, you can just not come," because like that's not how friendships and relationships work. I think you have to do some negotiation at the table, and be like, "This is not the funnest for me," but you guys, th that's how it is for numbers. Like I'm like I want to cut the dice out, but like none of my players want that. Like I am making a negotiation to have the most fun with the group I have and. Yeah, it, it is. So in this, it is in this analogy, um, I think D and D five is the buffet that is the most approachable, and I really disagree with that because I do not think D and D five is the the most accessible for new players. Right, like you're saying, you want to feed and satisfy the most people. Um, because uh, I've said before, if I'm teaching role playing to people for the first time, I'm going to play super random or dungeon world because it's so easy and it works the way people think it's going to work. So as far as being in the middle of the road, uh, I think mechanically. It is in the middle, but it is not in the middle for approachability. I think that would be so maybe more like OSR where you, you, have, <laughs> you have people roll the dice <laughs> and, and get their character randomly. Because the other issue I see is people who don't have any idea of how to play or, or a character concept. Um, so there's, it's not like D&D is bad. Like 5e is not bad at all. But I just think that it's not, it's not in the middle of approachability. Huh. Um, yeah, I don't know. Because I, I, I don't know. I had a guy come over. Hasn't played, uh, so I, I'm in the rare position of uh, having to fill a spot at my table. And uh, oh. I had uh, invited a few people and kind of went through and I found a guy, um, a, an old friend from college uh, who still lives in town. And he, he came to my house um, and I explained my world. Uh, we built his character, which is a goblin gunslinger. Um, and it was just me and him. Uh, and we did from nothing not knowing anything to completing his character in about 30 to 40 minutes like i and i was like this is totally doable like this is approachable this guy is playing a goblin gunslinger <laughs> like and we did that in like half an hour and so i don't know i think maybe it's because like i've explained the like party game so much i just know what to say to get the process streamlined um, but yeah, I think it's more approachable than you guys think. Hmm. And I, I think the sales numbers are events. showing that. Yeah, but huh. why aren't they selling as much I as I think there's a difference between making a character and playing a character. And 
you can make a character in 30 minutes like that's not that hard i can be like hey do this do this do this and you have a good character but like to actually like go and play after that point that's that's no so i i think we're getting off track here because like i said dnd is not unapproachable but i think there's other systems that are more approachable at least from a uh green what do they say green behind the ears greenhorn greenhorn yeah um so are you guys white behind the ears why are you why are you guys playing 5e because everybody is playing 5e like it's the game people want to so play just people will a... not play with me if i say um i'm running osr really i mean i'm not running a why game do you think that is but i'm if next time i run a game it's not gonna be 5e hmm why do you think they wouldn't play because it's because i i think if i were to do a one shot with you um i yeah i'd much rather do dungeon crawl classics um or dungeon world you know like an osr game just because more variants that's that's interesting well, if it's if it's a one shot um i think the the issue is just unfamiliarity um because like 5e you can get hyped by reading anything online from any of these communities like the reddit community is huge youtube is huge um it's everywhere yeah, critical role and so yeah. yeah like people will tell you why it's a great game and it is a great game um but if it's just me saying oh we should actually be playing uh bx D because i want to play it they're like i don't know anything about that that sounds terrible why aren't we playing 5e because i want to play as assassin goblin gunslinger and not uh, <laughs> and not a, an elf magic user yeah yeah and so i understand that's interesting it's, just, it's where the, the people are yeah yeah and and really uh, this is a social um world like this is a mm-hmm. social circle that you have to negotiate and um communicate what is the most fun for everyone and that and is the art my solution really is just to, to house rule 5e until it resembles something like what i want from the osr so i've already included a lot I'm of done. combat as war ideas but the problem is the players are so mm-hmm. powerful it's ridiculous um i've implemented car- player skill um instead of character skill and um as for rulings not rules like very rarely it comes up but it does come up sometimes um but the next thing I want to fix is healing and health because players just have too much of it um, and just roll that yeah. back to something a little more difficult. Um, but, I mean, it's just a lot. Good luck with your modding because I'm also <laughs> modding 5e to fit my flavor as well. I want to talk about my favorite old school systems right now. Um, there is very many of them on the market. Um, I think there's probably something like eight or 900, if not more. Um, and wow. all these are, are essentially the core rules of the original game or games, like either OD&D or AD&D or second, whatever. Take your pick. Somebody has taken the system, modernized it a little bit, removed some of the clunk or in some places added in clunk. <laughs> and uh, this is them. But I've, I've looked at many of them and these are my favorites. So the first one I want to talk about, uh, you two are familiar with, it's called Dungeon Crawl Classics. Um, yes. This game, interestingly, so we talked about the fiction that inspired the original game. This is a um, a guy named John, no, Joseph Goodman is his name. Joseph Goodman um, read all of the appendix in literature and had an idea in his head about the type of game that Gary was going for. And so he made almost what you would think of as the second edition, the, the I guess the alternative second edition of D&D if Gary had stayed with the company. And the result is very interesting. So um, there's a few features I will just hit on. The first is the spells in this game are insane. Um, Because every spell has, I think, at least 12 or 15 different ways it behaves. And what that means is, depending on how high or low you roll, 
it will behave differently. So a, a fireball, let's say. You cast a fireball and you get like mi the minimum roll. It'll do some minimal effect, not a lot of fire, um, whatever. It's, it's the barest amount of the spell. If you roll the highest level of a fireball, it's essentially a supernova that's going to burn everything in like a mile. So you might not even want to cast the highest level spell, but it's, ran you know, it's randomized, right? Because it could kill everyone in your party and everything you're trying to kill and burn all the treasure you're trying to get. Because it's unpredictable. Because Joseph Goodman read these books and he saw that spells are dangerous in this fiction and it's unpredictable and it's hard to use. And, and anyway, very unique. Oh, that's interesting. So the other interesting thing about DCC is what they uh, call the character creation funnel. Um, and they just have tables that you roll on. It'll generate a random, terrible character that you don't even have a level yet, so you're nothing. So your uh, <laughs> class, if you think of it as a class, is like farmer or... Uh, beggar. They have something Potato called a gong thing. farmer, which is a person who shovels poop out of the outhouse hole. Ooh, that's what I do. Mm. Um, and, and they, they give oh, you some man. random assortment of starting equipment, like a pitchfork or a trowel if you're the gong farmer. Um, I think, Jake, you had um, a bunch of chickens. I had a chicken farmer that followed I had, you around. Yeah, I had four chickens, and then I had one that I was a baker, and what I had was a rolling pin and a sack of grain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you all own the dungeon. Oh, so um, everybody in the, in, let's say it's the first session, um, you have all the players generate three or four level zero characters. They're all terrible, but unique in their own terrible ways. And then they all go into this dungeon, and throughout the course of this first adventure, they're going to die. Like, the body count is very high, and whoever comes out the other side yeah. of the funnel levels up to level one. You pick a class, and you become a real character. And then you would just pick one to play <laughs> in the adventures moving forward. And it's, it's surprisingly fun. I thought it was going to be terrible, um, but it's it's very fun. It is. It's super fun. Yeah, it sounds horrifying, but, like, it is so, – <laughs> I don't know. It adds this, like, comedy, like this, this tragic black comedy nature of going through a dungeon. Uh, it is almost the opposite of 5e because 5e yeah. is, like, this, you know – heroic um just you go in and dominate and kind of have this power fantasy this is the opposite you're like bakers and musicians and children just scrambling away from like a snake <laughs> <laughs> so good yeah. everybody's not wanting to be the one who uh stomps on the snake's head <laughs> yeah yeah <sighs> so uh the next one i want to talk about is called adventurer conqueror king um from what i understand there's really uh, two kinds of old school, they're called retro clones because it's they just, it's modernized old D&D. &D. Um, the first school is just a guy who has been, he's modified and house ruled his game to a point that is really no longer recognizable by and large as the original thing that it was. This guy is, maybe this is offensive, this guy is not very smart. He probably has a different job somewhere, right? Uh, but he's just he's made mm -hmm. this system since he was 15, and he's just built onto it. And so I would say that it, uh, it's designed by feel, and uh, sometimes they have made roles decisions that I find very questionable. I'm not going to give examples of this. But the other school of thought is uh, people who are very intelligent, let's say they are engineers career-wise, and they mathematically disassemble the original D&D and then put it back together in a way that is more cohesive and coherent and that is what ACKS, ACKS, Axe, Adventure Conqueror King is. It's um, made by a guy whose last name is 
McCree or Macris, whatever. I don't know his first name. Um, Hanun. And he uh, he's made what I think is just a stellar version of the, the rules here. Um, and he has very... He, he sort of exposed the game design bones, and so you can make your own class very simply. And he says, okay, here's what we did to make this guy. Just take this template and this template and mash them together, and you're good. I love um, that. But he also focuses... I know, it's really clean. And um, so DCC probably focuses more on that, um, David would say, the mouth feel of the system. A big feature of the system is um, you become a king after you become a conqueror. Uh, you get land and maybe even slaves if you want, but you get employees, peasants, whatever. They, they have um, rules for slaves. Um, notably, the adventure setting or the campaign setting of Axe is um, the decline of Rome. Like that, to get that feeling of um, That's cool. technology and of people. Yeah, and I've never seen that in a fantasy game before, surprisingly. It reminds me of a game called Titan yeah. Quest. It's set in ancient Greece. Um, and, it, and it opens up all kinds of new feelings because when you're picturing like triremes sailing across the narrow sea, or the Mediterranean, right? Uh-huh. Um, it, it's super cool and really unique. So that is Axe. And the last one I want to talk about is not necessarily old school, but it um, you can play old school modules very easily in this, and this is called Dungeon World. Um, this is much more of a storytelling game, and it's going to give your players instant hooks into the world and into their relationships with each other. Um, it's not... So if you were talking rulings, not rules, you're going to get a lot of that here, but with the story focus. Um, I've heard this explained. The reason storytelling games are so similar to OSR games is that if there's a spectrum with one on either end, um, the spectrum is, is not a straight line. It's like a horseshoe. And so OSR and, and storytelling are surprisingly close in, in some yeah, respects. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they, they do a lot yeah, of the same things. I think things. we're close because we're on the opposite side of the horseshoe. Yeah, with D&D 5 right in the middle. Yeah, Designing. and I've taken it the other direction. Yeah, huh. <laughs> right. So that that's the episode on the OSR. Welcome to this week's Question Vault. Every week we answer one of your questions. You can submit your question to voxercanapodcast at gmail.com. This week we have a question from William, not me, it's a different person. So William asked us a question uh, about power ceilings. Um, basically... He has a campaign where he says his characters are reaching near maximum level. Um, And he said it made sense because when we talked about um, character creation earlier on in the show, we mentioned that um, it doesn't make sense for someone to have all these accolades and all these accomplishments um, and all this backstory and then only be level one. Um, So it sounds like uh, William took this to heart and started his campaign with them being pretty high level. Um, so he asked us how ludicrous it would be to have extra planar invaders coming into the setting. Um, and he asked if that idea was too far out there. So what do you guys think? Is that too crazy? And then we can kind of talk about power ceilings in general. Is that it? Are you saying is the idea too far out there because it's in another plane of existence? <laughs> 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 They'll get closer, William. No. <laughs> um, what do you guys think? Well, if you're starting at a high level, then you're going to quickly find in 5e it becomes harder to challenge your players at high level. An issue that I've run into is there's not really modules set at level 15 or 20. There's just not. And so uh, even the monsters, like the monster manuals, starts to break down because there's not a lot of things to fight that will challenge you. So if he's doing extra planar invaders, I don't think it's far fetched. I think it's 
totally where he now, needs to be. And so you say, you say, William, near maximum level in your question, that to me is horrifying um, just because of my type of play. But once they get that level and, and close to max level, so we're talking late teens, um, I mean, you're at the point where you can't just throw a god at them. You're going to have to throw multiple gods uh, or demon lords at them. Um, it's going to become cumbersome and huge. And it just depends on if your players like that. If they want to slog through gargantuan conflicts between titans. Um, yeah, I mean, there's some there's some cool stuff at higher levels. Um, but I would just, in general, throw caution to everyone out there who's starting their campaign. Um, you know, you can be someone who helped kill a dragon um, and has served in the army um and has has a decent backstory and then still start them at like level four like that that makes sense um i think it's it's real it's tempting to start campaigns or have players start at such a high level because they have access to all these cool spells and it's exciting but then you're gonna have to throw you know like six purple worms at them and it's it's just gonna get insane and it, it could get epic you know it, it it will have to be epic but it will it, it's a big deal, you know? So I think the, it's important to remember that characters that seem... Um, so let's take just Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. I'd say at the like end of the trilogy, I'd say he's probably like level, I don't know, like seven? Yeah. Like he's he is a hero with all this backstory and, you know, a, the crux of a lot of the plot. But yeah, he's not level 20. Um I'd say the highest level character in Lord of the Rings is probably Legolas. And even then, he's he's not a level 20. Um, so I think it's important to look at characters from fiction that have all this backstory, have all these accolades and achievements, and estimate what level you think they'd be. Um, I mean, I, I'd say Ned Stark from Game of Thrones. He's probably like level, what, five, said, six? Said it better than I could have. You summed like, it right up. Yeah, I, yeah even lower maybe. Um, so... Yeah, I would I would pump the brakes with starting at that high of a level, but once you have them, you know, there make it epic and maybe even start a new campaign and their current ca characters become high level NPCs or demigods um, that affect the world differently. But yeah, you got to really make sure they want to fight creatures over four hours in epic Titanic struggles, you know. So I think the, it's important to remember that characters that seem um so let's take just aragorn from lord of the rings i'd say at the like end of the trilogy i'd say he's probably like level i don't know like seven like he's he is a hero with all this backstory and you know a, the crux of a lot of the plot but yeah he's not level 20 um i'd say the highest level character in lord of the rings is probably legolas and even then he's he's not a level 20 um, no. so I think it's important to look at characters from fiction that have all this backstory, have all these accolades and achievements and estimate what level you think they'd be. Um, I mean, I, I'd say Ned Stark from Game of Thrones. He's probably like level, what, five, six, like, Four. yeah, I, yeah, even lower maybe. Um, so yeah, I would, I would pump the brakes with starting at that high of a level, but once you have them, you know there make it epic and maybe even start a new campaign and their current ca characters become high level npcs or demigods mm -hmm. um 
that affect the world differently. But yeah, you got to really make sure they want to fight creatures over four hours in epic titanic struggles, you know. Couldn't have said it better myself, Jake. And that was the question ball. Thanks, William. Thanks, Will. All right, now we're moving on to the review corner. So every week we read our favorite five-star reviews from iTunes. Uh, This week's review is from PunkRockFan117. He says, This podcast is excellent for so many reasons, but my favorite reason is you get to hear discussions on D&D as a game, the classes, mechanics, etc. From three hosts with very different philosophies uh, about how to play the game. I think we heard that in this episode. (laughs) about how to play the game. It makes for an engaging listen and makes you ask yourself what you really think about D&D challenging your perspective. Also, Jake is daddy. Guys, it looks like I have a son. (laughs) It's me. I hope not. This is Punk Rock Fan 117, not David. That's me. Punk Rock Fan 117. That's my name. (laughs) Well, son, uh, well, sport, uh, thank you for your review. Um, and uh, make sure you do your homework. No, oh, that's good. Oof. You're a stern father, Jake. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Vox Arcana episode 23. I'm William. I'm Jake. And I'm David. We'll see you next time. You can follow us on social media. Our Twitter is at Vox Arcana Pod. Our Facebook and Instagram are at Vox Arcana Podcast. And our email is Vox Arcana Podcast at gmail.com. Hashtag CAC. <laughs>